0: Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity, recorded in the pod at White City Place. I'm David Michonne. Buildings aren't only to be admired from a distance. We also experience them up close and personal. That's why details matter. The touch of a door handle, the ornamentation on a column, the color of the walls, they can make the difference between spaces that work for us and spaces that we love. There are a lot of simple ideas that have a big impact, and architects are often trying to find the balance between creating new and interesting work, putting their ideas into action, but also ensuring that their work feels accessible to a broader audience. In the pod today, a conversation about just that, the smaller details and their impact.
1: I'm Alex Gore, and I'm an architect. I run a practice um, called Price Gore, and I teach architecture at Kingston School of Art. Uh, I'm Timothy Smith.
2: I'm also an architect, and I run a practice, uh, Timothy
0: Smith, Jonathan Taylor Architects, and I teach at Kingston School of Art. Alex graduated from the Cass School of Architecture in 2008 and established Price Gore Architecture Practice with Dingle Price in 2013. Alex also teaches at the Kingston School of Art alongside Dingle and is a design advisor to the London Borough of Harrow and Hounslow. This year, Price Gore collaborated with designer Yinka Ilori, a past guest on this podcast, to create the latest edition of the Dulwich Pavilion, outside the Dulwich Picture Gallery. Called the Color Palace, the structure fuses European and Nigerian influences, taking inspiration from the fabric markets of Lagos and the architecture of Sir John Soane. It's open from now until September 22nd. Timothy studied at Edinburgh College of Art and Cass School of Architecture and co-founded the practice Timothy Smith and Jonathan Taylor Architects in 2010. Some of their current projects include estate buildings for the National Trust, a housing development in East Anglia, a large barn conversion in the South Downs, and several residential conversions and refurbishments. Tim is also head of the Masters of Architecture course at Kingston School of Art, where alongside Jonathan, he leads the only design unit in Europe teaching the classical language of architecture. In 2005, he was shortlisted for the RIBA Silver Medal for his project Topography of Time and Urban Study in the historic centre of Naples, Italy. So we've
1: both just had exhibitions, so Mm -hmm. our students have just put on an exhibition um, in an arts organisation called Primary in Nottingham, um, their work looking at very direct economic construction. Tim, I know your students' work has just been exhibited um, on Shatwell Farm in Mm -hmm. Somerset. And that's exploring another sort of linguistic aspect of Mm -hmm. architecture. And we've also just opened this um, summer pavilion at Dulwich. Which is quite colourful. Which is quite colourful. And also an aspect of that project is, for us, is, is the language of architecture. So we thought that those three things would be an interesting place to start. And I suppose perhaps you could say something about these kind of large fragments that your students have been positioning around sheds in Somerset
2: yeah they came from a desire to bring um, sort of real buildings into the teaching studio really um, and the one to one scale um, and the direct emotional response that um, that that we think people have to buildings, um, whether they're familiar buildings and uh, a sort of a door handle that uh, that you grow to love through daily use so yeah they came from um a desire to engage students with um with real buildings in the teaching studio and the scale of um of buildings one-to-one full size um which is a way that users of buildings engage with them a door handle something like that that you sort of grow to love through daily use um and a scale that when you're sort of close to a building there's something very direct about it you're not It's more immediate than the way that uh, architects tend to speak about architecture,
1: which can be quite abstract. I suppose I always had one thought about that, which was that it's about presence, about, Mm. you know, in a teaching environment or in a practice environment, having a very direct relationship with the presence of architecture, the Mm. form or the profile of uh, a piece of a building. And then the other thing with this particular exhibition is the effectiveness of taking them out of contents mm, and putting mm, them on a farm. Mm, I, I haven't seen the exhibition, mm, but you have. Mm, how, 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 what was that like to see them? It, it was quite odd, and it was a real privilege as well
2: because um, I hadn't had to be involved in the transport or <laughs> the setting up of them, which uh, we usually are. So I was able to just walk into that barn and see all of these white classical bits of architecture. It's a bit like being in the Roman Forum or the, mm. um, you know, the... the the, the the base of the acropolis or something um surrounded by bits of buildings um yeah it's enormously powerful and it helps you it just helps you to see these things slightly differently and that's um uh well it's one of the challenges of teaching isn't it but also um just kind of conceiving of of a building um a building design having to think about things in all sorts of ways it can be really hard to step away from the drawing board yeah um and, I mean, your pavilion has a similar sort of sense um, of uh, of uh, a sort of sympathetic disjunction or something like that. That, you know, it's the last thing you expect to see in Dulwich, um, but it comes out of a narrative about sown um, uh, the picture gallery itself uses colour in a really interesting, exciting way. It's one of the things it's known for.
1: Yeah, yeah. the other similarity is the, the way that things are made and this desire for a sort of chasing down a kind of formal aspect of architecture in that I know these fragments, when you look at them from a distance, look beautiful, they look mm. like pieces of stone, but actually they're made of cardboard mm. or foam mm. in the same way that the pavilion is made of extraordinarily cheap materials, quite crude materials in some cases, but loosely and ambiguously kind of arranged to evoke a number of architectural ideas, formal ideas, uh, which comes back a bit to another thing. Part of the reason why I think this conversation between our practice and your practice or me and you is for a number of years now, we've had a sort of growing magpie type interest in Mm. architectural history in a sort of, we feel like we should be able to borrow from all of it, and I know that you've got a much more specific focus. I think mm. you probably share some of that sensibility, but you, you've been chasing down some idea about the formal language of architecture in a much more specific way. Um, and well, we found a language. We,
2: we, we, you know, yes. this colleague of ours at Kingston suggested that we were sort of after the same thing but in different ways. And that's that's what they're saying, isn't it? That, um, yeah, I mean, Jono and I, in setting up practice, were really interested in what buildings should look like and we were really interested in certain sorts of buildings and it led us to an interest in classical architecture. Um, and the more we found out about it, the broader um, its possibilities um, seemed to be. So we we're attempting through our work with our students and also our practice is to learn that language and, um, and use it to express ourselves. Mm. Um, and it felt like an, an, uh, another important aspect of it is that we think that um, the general public are able to understand it. And um, sometimes, um, you know, building can be very... Uh, sort of monumental, um, almost kind of terrifying by the use of classicism, but it can also be highly, um, it can be a lot softer and a lot more welcoming. Um, so, and it's all through the deployment of certain sort of principles, and we think it's got lots of variety in it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's actually a very different approach to, to what yours has been, of, sort of juxtaposing elements and, you know, drawing from, Everything in a, everything in a history, in the history of
1: architecture. Yeah, yeah, and I think the response to the pavilion in particular has been, uh, it's been great. It's been exciting for us that oh, I think we put a lot of work into, in a way, finding a form that could hold as many references as we could cram in, but also that would be loose enough and accessible enough for people to make their own interpretations. Mm. And I think the comments we get back from people that, you know, children love it. um, Architects seem to enjoy it. Mm. People from all sorts of backgrounds um, seem to find something in it. And I find that fascinating. And Mm. and it's one of the questions about the profession that I sort of, not worries me, but that you constantly sort of think about in that how do we, how relevant is the profession, which aspects of the profession do the public think are relevant? So, for instance, our particular interest in language is that a sort of niche thing that we're smuggling past all of our clients. Is it part of our selling point? Um, you sort of, there are the kind of cliches about architects that they mm. obsess about the aesthetics to the detriment of the waterproofing detail. Or you've not been creative enough if the roof doesn't leak. Exactly, um, and I wonder, I wonder how we address that. From uh, yeah, from the from the discipline point of view, I mean, I worry, I worry about the, and this is not specific to architecture, it's a sort of, it's more to do with professional disciplines in general, but people's distrust of them, a sort mm. of ivory tower accusation, and whilst I sort of deeply want to defend the discipline and defend the ability to think seriously about architecture and what it means and find the time to do that in practice um one also wants to be accessible i, you know, I genuinely want people to be able to mm. understand architecture to be able to read architecture to make places and buildings that people enjoy and can engage with them on a cultural level so that they're somehow reflective and responsive and i think we're sort of feeling our way into a way of practice that mm. is kind of allowing us to do that i think the pavilion as a process uh, we learned a lot um and i wonder you, you know you're coming at it from a completely different perspective how that works for you i was That's just it. wondering if a if
2: a good analogy would be would be being in the ivory tower but with a lift or <laughs> you because know, it's important to have some distance it's important to have some professional um autonomy mm-hmm. and you know we are architects we love architecture and 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 if we're able to build really great buildings for people uh that's the way that we do our professional service mm. um, and I think I think our profession uh, needs to be careful not to undermine itself in its eagerness to um for broad appeal, I think broad appeal comes from delivering really fantastic buildings, and, and they might not be fully appreciated for some time. And we, we you know, we've spoken before about about the sort of timescale that architects like us are dealing with. That we're not the sorts of architects who start from a tabula rasa. Mm. Um, you know, our, our our approach to a commission. Let's say it's a private residential commission a lot of our work is um, in conservation areas and listed buildings partly because our services are required for planning and listed building consent but also because we're able to um understand that building from its you know from before it was built and we can think about it uh for a long time in the future it's not only about dealing with where coats and shoes go for yeah. this particular client and as we're sort of guardians of of the built environment in a way, and, um, and that I find that very exciting, but it's, it's quite hard. We, you know, we've been in the pub many times talking about clients and how to engage, you know, engage with clients and engage with others in the construction process and procurement process, which is incredibly complex these days. Um, and and yeah, that like how you how you speak with a client about their their very particular concerns and how you manage their budget um, is uh, a daily conversation.
1: Yeah. It's that a unique position of having to deal with, as you say, the the multiple timescales of a building project, which can be huge, but then also very immediate for a client. So you have to deal yeah. with, as you say, where the shoes go, but then there will be another set of occupants in five years, 15 years, 50 years. Yeah. And you're, so you're always balancing those ideas, which are complex. Yeah. And I guess they're the same with the a sort of more physical aspect of architecture, which is from the interior to the street or the building to the city, that you're always acting for one client and thinking or bearing in mind another mm. set of mm. clients mm. or constraints. And how much of those particular conversations that are very important to the profession and to us as practitioners, how much of those are revealed to mm. clients? Um, in those conversations around the table, it's quite interesting. That the more you get to know them, the more the conversation goes on. The more of that you might reveal, but actually, some of it might stay quite hidden. Yeah, you still points. have
2: to be on your guard.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, you, you, you have to.
2: Yeah, we really have to speak to a lot of different audiences, don't we? And I think, in a way, if someone asks sort of what what is it that an architect does, of course we design buildings. We can specify them. We know how to construct them. Uh, always, this is in com- conversation or collaboration with someone else. Yeah. Um, and and when it's a real joy is when you're you're provoking or pushing in collaboration with someone. So you know the builder knows how to build things, but they'll know their way of building it, and they might, under our provocation, work out different ways. And that's genuinely a a, um, a sort of a, a team. Uh, but it's it's having having a conception of this project. And being able to speak with all sorts of different people. You have a different conversation about it with the planners to with the builder, to with the client, to with an engineer. Um, and it's never, it's never that you're just using these people or you're trying to get around them. It, for us, it's, it's never that at all. Um, but you, there's a lot that each of those parties doesn't need to know mm. and that would worry them if they did know it. Mm. And, and just knowing how to...
1: And part of your role is managing... Yeah, who has what information to make something happen?
2: Yeah, it's perhaps more like being a film director or something. You know, at the end of a film, you just see the credits (laughs) and there's so many people involved. You see the accountants. It's not, um, you know, it's it's not the sort of art where
1: you're um, in a studio on your own. And coming back more specifically to the question of language, how often do you find yourself having conversations directly with clients or anyone else around the table, for that matter, about language? Or is that something that's between. You and Jonathan and the others in the practice, it, uh, and how do you facilitate those conversations? How, how, if you're talking about a column or a doorway or a particular window detail, and you do have those conversations with clients, how are you? How are you helping them to see it? Is it through models? Is it through drawings? It depends. Or does of, it just not happen?
2: Uh, well, it does happen, but. Um... <laughs> But perhaps not explicitly, you know, if you're working on an existing building, you're immediately, you know, in our initial sort of fee offer, we're talking about um, our office's expertise in understanding a building and, um, and perhaps sometimes undoing some refurbishment from a few years ago uh, to allow that building to sort of be what it is because you've got clients who've bought a lovely Edwardian house in a conservation area. Uh, so with existing buildings, there is already a com- – there is already a language. Um, which you can choose to be sympathetic to or to, to sort of deny. Um, with new build projects, we haven't done many and those that we've designed have been for competitions where it's, a, it's an office conversation. Um, and as a result of which we feel sort of well equipped to, to, to begin, it's helped us find a position that we can, um,
0: we can express to new clients in the future. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded in the pod at White City Place. In conversation are architects Alex Gore and Timothy Smith.
1: You mentioned figure, this idea of, um, I guess, character in buildings, mm. which is a very difficult thing to talk about. It's an even more difficult thing to teach. But it somehow does seem essential, it certainly seems essential to the way we practice. I mean I know that um, the way that we were taught uh, the figure of a building, its contribution to the city and a series of kind of interiors were kind of fundamental to the way one thinks about architecture and I think we were talking earlier about the pavilion again, that it sets up this series of games which are geometrical and you then have to break down mm. this sort of pure idea of a cubic geometry into something that is usable mm. that people can climb up into mm. or move under. So you're always contradicting the geometry and, and these are kind of quite old games in architecture where symmetry on the outside can't be replicated and symmetry on the inside because mm-hmm. if you put a series of windows in a facade mm-hmm. symmetrically, the thickness of the wall on the inside mm-hmm. means you've got a different set of measures. Mm-hmm. And I think those things are really interesting in the pavilion what you end up is with is something in the hole which is quite not ugly but mm. the proportions are quite odd mm. um, but then quite beautiful in fragmentary moments and the th-
2: yeah and the, um, the, the the brackets it's then how you how you resolve those those contingencies problems um, real real issues of construction and regulation things like that yeah um, that um the, a lot of the joy of architecture resides in and uh i what well, I, I loved at the pavilion the um the the, the brackets the um steel brackets mm. um up in the roof you know blue ceiling or roof underside of roof structure with these metal brackets sort of sparkling a bit like a starry ceiling yeah fantastic and uh, yeah i'm sure you thought of it <laughs> but You know, in the evening, that just it really worked very nicely, and it's that sort of joy coming out of a practical requirement, which is quite often um, maybe by different architects, but certainly you know the conversation on building site is very often. Oh well, you know, we can just box that in. You know, the expedience of a building site is is about concealing some of the things that, with a little bit of thought, can be um, beautiful in their own right. and it would be and, and, and so much a lot of our we're we're quite particular architects I think we are quite quite marginal at the moment quite a small
1: <laughs> part of the profession you oh, mean. yeah
2: yeah um uh well and also sort of on the edge i think of of sort of the mainstream of the mainstream architectural culture Yeah. and what we see of that mainstream um it, uh, sort of feels increasingly banal. And uh, uh, there's a lot of new architecture. If you spoke to the public about new architecture in London, they'd talk about there's a lot of housing going up, which is windows and walls now. It's quite, yeah. But that's about as far as it goes from a sort of expression or tectonic point of view. And you've got various tower buildings with different names, cheese grater, the gherkin, Mm -hmm. walkie-talkie. That architecture has become kind of branding, uh, and the star architects that everyone knows, the Zaha, you know, we interview students for the course, and favourite architect, Zaha Hadid. She's incredibly famous, incredibly strong brand. But there'll be a lot behind a Zaha building that would be absolutely fascinating to know about that you're never allowed
1: to hear. That's not the official story, yeah. the official narrative. Yeah. Because they must be making similar decisions to us all the time. They must about be. how you put that door there, why that door is that shape, how you signify the entrance... Because and whether like, it's a great idea or not, yeah. how do you do
2: a wonky door on wonky hinges? <laughs> It'd be quite interesting to know about it.
1: Yeah, it would. It would. Um, colour. We were going to talk about colour.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's been very exciting for both of us, I think, to use colour. You, architects don't use colour.
1: No, they don't. Um, this is one of the yeah. This is one of the things of that list I made that. Uh, things that seem neglected or forgotten for whatever reason, whether it's through uh, unfamiliarity or fear or um, distrust, perhaps. Mm. Um, But we've been using colour more and more, been learning a lot about it. Um, I think projects don't necessarily have to be colourful, as in have lots of colour or Mm. be... But you say you're learning about it.
2: Do you you feel it's something you need to know about to use
1: i think so i think like all aspects of architecture i mean i think when you i think as practicing architects one of the things that our practices share is that we are using architecture as a way of understanding the world so every project is a sort of exploration so Mm -hmm. whilst um, whilst we have our kind of basic competence, we're registered architects, mm-hmm. we can do all of that, but there's a sort of desire to keep pushing, to keep figuring stuff out, and colour is certainly one of those things that we didn't get taught about, really. Mm-hmm. A bit like nobody really told us about Jim Sterling, we had mm-hmm. to discover him on our own, and that was groundbreaking for us, But and, and colour is, is the same. Um, and I know you've done a number of colourful projects, Mm. um we have yeah. struggles with
2: clients yeah they're never as bright in the end as we hoped or pr- brights. M- perhaps not the right word but they're, ne- they're often not as intense as we'd hoped so you know we start off by saying you should paint your stair and entrance hall black in the hope that we might end up with a very dark blue <laughs> <laughs> um, but now i'm interested in 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 sort of I think you probably want to know about color. Mm. And you know there's a lot you can read about color and there's a lot you can um you can look at but the thing that I found enormously refreshing about um what I do find refreshing about it is y- uh you can be a bit more flippant about it. You can try things out. Mm. It's cheap to paint over it if you get it wrong. Um and getting it wrong I mean it was nice that there are yeah there's sort of rules about out there and theories about colour but really it's just placing two colours side by side and against some of the more the natural finished materials you're using yeah. um, and just you've got an idea about the mood of a room and colour can, give, can really augment that um, and the exciting thing is kind of breaking free of a past <laughs> through education lots of the architects that, that, um, that we still admire and they had to have a reason to do everything and what's wonderful about colour particularly is it just doesn't feel like you need a reason.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I say that I want to know about it, I suppose I don't, mean, I don't mean so much that I want to know the theory, but I want to learn it through practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I probably would read some theory yeah. because that's in my nature, but I guess what I mean is just to try things out and understand the effect of things. You know, colour can be intoxicating if used in the right way. It can be calming. Yeah. And I think you don't know these things until you done it and i suppose the other thing i always think about color or that bugs me is the slight sort of um misreading or misrecording of history mm-hmm. where ni- you know through black and white photography mm. the color mm. of a lot of 1920s mm. uh, modernist housing is, is is erased well and also Actually,
2: the narrative it's it's it is the, it obviously it's the it's the photography um uh, when it's black and white, but it's also it's also the historical narrative. No one taught me about Le Corbusier and color.
1: Yeah.
2: I was taught about Le Corbusier as a modernist, um, uh, uh, social political issue about form and function, um, about uh, 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 casting away the shackles of the past. When you start looking at Corb, his travels to Greece and his color. Um palette, I'd mm. say, not mm. even sort of theory, just his color palette. The furniture was colorful. Those chairs you see in foyers in chrome and black leather. I didn't think chrome and black leather were ever part of the original series. They were all these wonderful burgundies and and um
1: sort of mustard fabrics and things like that. Suddenly, I'm really interested in him again. yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you know the walls of say the some of the villas in Paris. An amazing range of mm. kind of purples and peaches and blues and browns. Colors that are quite unexpected and used in quite um, relaxed ways. I suppose we're we're sort of haunted by the feature wall of the '90s, but actually some of those villas mm. do just use a plane of color and yeah. as an accent, and it can be very effective spatially. And I think that kind of skill. Not that it's been lost, but it's just not practiced that much. And yeah. I think we want to find a way of doing that again. But again, it's about sort of a permissiveness that we feel like we should be allowed to draw on whichever aspect of architectural history we want. It all yeah. seems relevant. Yeah. Um, but I guess there is a generation before us that felt like they had to justify all their decisions empirically or scientifically, yeah. e- even though they were clearly making intuitive architectural decisions. Yeah, they wouldn't talk about it. Yeah, and, and I feel like it, our generation is much more willing to talk about those things, which are difficult to talk about. It's difficult to talk about intuition in yeah. architecture, um, but I feel like we are more, and mm. I think we should mm. more. Mm. Um, what I want to make
2: sure we say is that that pavilion of yours mm. um, is—it's uh, a proper building, and I think that's. Uh, there's been an article recently in, in the Guardian about pavilions. Mm. Uh, young practices like ours um, uh, uh, engage in the design of these things. It's an opportunity to, you know, to, to, to do work um, quite quickly. Mm. But it's a re- it's a proper building, and I want to make sure that we um, we sort of say that as it's open <laughs> um, now this summer. Uh, it, it, it deals with you've mentioned it before but a lot of the sort of challenges of the ideal um uh and the and then the contingencies of construction and all that sort of stuff it 's got a facade it 's got it 's got it 's got a thickness that facade has thickness um it's i think that 's a it 's a difficult thing to achieve with a pavilion. You need to have a snappy idea, something that is expedient it 's not too expensive that can do some of the functional, exciting things the client wants. But for that to be a serious building as well, I think, is rare.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think for us, um, there are a lot of architectural ideas in it. It is architecture for us. But I think people like it, as in the people that are now visiting it, but I think also the jury and the people that set up the conversation, they liked it because it felt like a pavilion. Mm, it it mm. is, in a way... It's quite bold. It's hard to, you can't just not notice it. Mm. Um, but people, I think people enjoy it because it has a lightness. It, it has that pavilion type quality. Mm. Um, so I think you're right. I mean, I think it's treading a kind of very fine line between building and pavilion. But it, that's it, the difficult it, thing that's about the,
2: pavilions, though, isn't it? You've yeah. not
1: got a lot of function to fall back on. <laughs> Yeah, it is a sort of almost pure architectural exercise in a way, mm. but making it feel, making it feel uh, light-hearted mm-hmm. and not taking itself too seriously, mm-hmm. I think, is something mm-hmm. that we're very interested in doing. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I think, I think, I think like you, we're pretty serious architects, but I don't think we want to hammer it home. No, I think no. we, we want to find a way of practicing that is engaging, that 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 comes across. Um, with a light-heartedness I think that's quite important
2: yeah and I th- yeah I think that's you know where we where our sort of practice interests overlap again is that this interest in classicism that we've got came right at the beginning from a desire for people to like our buildings and for those buildings to speak to them in some way for them to understand them without an education in architecture yeah. um, that certainly seems to have happened with the pavilion um, and and then we you know, sort of talking about the autonomy of the profession before. If you're able to build a really brilliant space room building, people find a way of using it. Um, you know, there are exceptions. There, yeah, the, the Egyptian halls in Glasgow. There's always some masterpiece um, of the past which people are struggling to reappropriate or, 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 or whatever. But but mostly. Um, you know, you, you've got a good building and people want to reuse it. And Georgian Terrace is obviously an amazing example of, of a flexible type. Um, but even inflexible things, it's that good. Churches being used as geek venues as their, as their role in, in society changes. Yeah. This is coming back to
1: your idea, this idea of ar- time in architecture and the things an architect has to, or a good architect can yeah. hold within a project yeah. that it can be very specific yeah. but yeah. somehow also very vague
0: yeah. and allow a multitude of things to happen then. yeah exactly yeah. that was architects Alex Gore and Timothy Smith this has been Thought Starters recorded in the pod at White City Place Thought Starters is a DNN Co. project for White City Place produced by David Michon recorded and edited by Sean Crook to find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place Find us at WhiteCityPlace.com on Twitter or Instagram with the handle at WhiteCityPlace or shoot us an email at podcast at WhiteCityPlace.com. And subscribe to ThoughtStirters on iTunes. Give us a rating and write a comment. It really helps.